0: Howdy. I'm Nolan Gray, research director for California YIMBY, where we're hard at work trying to make California an affordable place to live, work, and raise a family. And as you can see today, I am bathed in beautiful Southern California sunshine. Welcome back to the Abundance Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the housing underproduction in California 2023 report. Uh, This is a brand new report that California EMB Education Research Fund just uh, published in collaboration with Mapcraft. Uh, To this end, I'm joined by Ann Carlton and Lacey Patterson, the co-founder and an analyst at Mapcraft, respectively, uh, two fantastic researchers who helped us put this report together. In this episode, we discuss what parts of California are building the least housing, uh, which are building the most where the gaps between market feasible capacity and actual permits are the widest and what all this means for housing policy in California going forward. Of course, it's our goal here at California EMB to really reconstitute housing policy on a more empirical data-driven basis. And we're excited for what we can do uh, there going forward. If you like what you see, uh, check out the full report. It's on our website. We also have associated maps and data, including a statewide uh, vacant parcels map Go check it out. It's on our website. Uh, go to the reports page, which is under the research tab, and uh, have fun. Uh, before I let you go, please, of course, as always, uh, subscribe if you haven't already, and leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps us to expand our reach and uh, spread the gospel of housing affordability to more people. With that, on to the show. Great. So Ian and Lacey, Mapcraft, it's really great to be chatting with you all.
1: Glad to
2: be here. Thanks, Nolan. Thanks. Thanks for
0: having us. Uh, housing under production. Uh, we've collectively been working on this probably like a year now. I think you guys did a first cut of really amazing work a few months ago, and it went dormant. Uh, but uh, I'm incredibly excited about this report and some of the amazing work that you all did. Uh, for those who haven't seen the report, it's on our website, California uh, YMB's website, CAMB.org. But in broad brushstrokes, you know, what we were trying to do is we know California has housing affordability crisis we know california has a housing shortage but there wasn't really a lot of great research on you know the geography of that shortage especially data informed research you know i i'm sure lacy and you all see these every day we hear about an atherton doing something crazy nimby or we hear it we hear about a huntington beach but i think as this report revealed right like the the geography of housing under production in california was a little bit more complex than that right
1: Sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's not just about people doing egregious things. It's about whether they could actually do something about it at the end of the day. So if Atherton, that's, that's your example, not mine, but if Atherton were, you know, out there doing things to block housing production, but there's actually no developers knocking at their door, then it's, it doesn't really matter. But if there's thousands of developers who would come and build in Atherton and they're standing in the way of development, then that's something that we should be considering.
0: Right. And so I think there's 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 two components of of, of this first part of the work uh, that went into the report. Uh, the, the first is uh, estimating, you know, how much housing do we think might be market feasible in any given jurisdiction in California based on pure market indicators trying to estimate, OK, like, let's imagine we didn't have regulatory barriers how much housing would potentially be possible? Do you want to talk a little bit about how you all approach that?
1: Sure. I mean, so there's lots of housing production um, in any market. And in California, you know, markets vary, but you have some production that's offsite production brought to the site, like mobile homes. Uh, You have production that's subsidized, like affordable housing. You have some production that's actually public or institutional, like dormitories, for example. But then the vast majority of our housing in almost any market and all across California is delivered by the private sector, um, acting on market forces and uh, and delivering housing um, in a way that um, we tend to think of as um, sort of like the classic developer goes, uh, gets a permit, a crane shows up, they start throwing things together. Um, and we we build housing. Um, but you can't get there until you've actually done a market assessment. Someone's gone and proven to a lender that it's feasible to do that. Um, someone has uh, acquired all of the, the, the labor you know, on the contractor side, all the materials and all that's available. And, and then you can actually start building. Um, and so we look at it from that perspective. We're, we're trying to figure out If you looked across the entire state or you looked across an area um, as a developer, put your developer hat on, and you thought about where could I go build the next building? In this case, we were looking at housing. And we could find the supplies at the right price. We could find the labor. We could do all that. And people would be willing to pay rents and, and or buy a property from us when we're done at a rate that's sufficient to cover all those costs that we've incurred to pay our lenders, to pay our investors, to pay back, you know, the California teachers union that is a big funder of uh, equity in all these deals. So we've got to pay all these people back. And so we're looking for those places where that would work for a market actor. Um, So that's, you know, big chunk of the market. Um, And and that's what we're talking about when we say, you know, where would the market be interested in building housing? It's places where they could provide that return on investment. Um, and deliver housing to people who are willing to pay enough um, to cover the costs
0: mm-hmm. well, and 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 so there are a few I you know that that's that's, yeah, that's all really great and helpful. There were a few things, too, that were, I think potential barriers that folks might not expect. So you know when we did remove a lot of the standard environmental exclusions, you know, I think one of the concerns that folks might have just doing this, applying it to every single parcel in the state as well, for one, half of California's public land right um that's unique condition in the western United States right but so half half of the land you just presumably are going to take it out uh another huge chunk of land is conservation easement and then you know I think the, the thinking at least on our end was to be sort of maximally conservative let's just also take out all of that land that was subject to high fire or flood risk or protected natural habitat um and you know, I mean, standard exclusions that get baked into a lot of the bills now that pass. Um, but so that, that I mean, that had an effect on some of the output, just in the sense of like, there are many parts of California. One that I flagged, for example, like um, Palos Verdes or Kenyatta Ridge. those jurisdictions were almost completely covered by a uh, very high fire risk, right? So they get booted out.
1: Yeah, Lacey, i want to say more about just how much of California is covered by those things.
2: Yeah, Lizzie mentioned in California, California is it's a large state and but half of it is environmentally sensitive or important for agricultural use, um, but fire hazard um, environmental sensitivity like wetlands plant floodplains those account for the in the other half of California um, 65% of that land is what we found on just the second half of California being part of these sort of other levels of um, environmentally sensitive or yeah hazardous to be building in and so you know when we looked at um what does it look like taking it all of this into account that 101 million acres that makes up california um becomes 17 million acres which Mm. still a lot of land but a much smaller area
0: yeah Yeah. well and it's important because i think That type of data, I think, is so pertinent to policymaking, because I think so much policymaking happens, uh, the valiant efforts of of Mapcraft and other folks notwithstanding, without, I think, really a lot of data analysis going into it. So, I mean, like, if we understand, okay, we want to say we don't want prime farmland being redeveloped, we want to steer growth away from fire flood risk areas, of course, et cetera. Yeah, 17 million acres is a lot, but it's also not a lot. Right. I mean, we've taken a lot out of the mix and I think then it becomes really important to say, well, is it easy to actually build the housing? Is it possible to build the housing that the state needs in that remaining land? And I mean, I think that's part of the why we're in the situation we're in right now is that in addition to other factors taking off lands off the table that I think most people would agree, yeah, that's not the best place to be building. But then with with what we have left over, it's really important. I'm, I know I'm, this is the advocacy Side of the uh, discussion here, it's really important that we make sure that you can actually build the housing the state needs in that remaining land. And
1: well, yeah. To go a step further, we we even narrowed it down further. So as we were talking about this, Nolan, uh, we decided that you know we need to take out uh, market feasible opportunities that's on land inside cities that might be you know used for some form of infrastructure, might be used for some kind of industry, might be used for schools or something else that wasn't captured in what Lacey was describing. So by the time we were done looking for where the market could deliver housing, we were actually only looking at, I think it was around 7 million acres of California. So 7% of the entire state was in our purview when we were thinking about where developers, putting on their market hats, where they would wanna show up and build housing today if they had a chance to, Um, only, we only considered seven percent
0: of the whole state. Yeah, no, that that's a and and then even with what's left over, right? I, this is important because I think it's it, I think it it actually strengthens the work you all did that we can say, look, we we took a pretty conservative approach to this. We took off all of the lands that I think somebody might have a plausible case are not going to be redeveloped for housing. But then on top of that, you know, like if there's an existing building on that structure, that that factors into the economic feasibility right of that project if if there is an, you know for example i think the example that you all given the in the in the methodology section is uh you know if there's a maybe there's a small uh com- a commercial building or small office building or a small multifamily building uh and yeah it's maybe it's a very high value area of of maybe the mid peninsula up in the bay area but uh you would still you might you might think you might look at that and be like well yeah of course that should be high-rise residential right but then it's like well it you know, that, that existing building is collecting rents and there's added cost of redevelopment there that, um, in some cases actually surprisingly, no, it doesn't pencil to redevelop. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what we do at Mapcraft is we run a lot of pro formas. Basically a pro forma is, uh, like a little calculation spreadsheet that a developer would run to figure out whether or not a particular site is going to pencil out. So is it going to provide enough money to their investors, to their lenders, and pay their contractors to build this new building, given what people are willing to pay in rent and or buy uh, a property there. So, in each location, we run those those numbers. And exactly what you're saying is that you know, let's say you're in L.A. and you're looking at a site, and it's got a seven-story building on it, and you could build a hundred-story building. You still may not do it because the economics of building a hundred-story building it's very expensive you'd have to tear down the seven story building. So you got to buy it first. That's very expensive. And you may not be able to provide your return to your investors, but next door to that building might be a parking lot. And that parking lot, you build a hundred story building there and you can compensate the owners for you know, uh, a, a parking lot instead of a seven story building and it might pencil out there. So we do that across these you know, uh, 7 million acres. And in this case, it was around 8 million parcels that you know, Lacey narrowed it down and we got to 8 million parcels across California where we could evaluate this pro forma feasibility. And uh, we found that across all of those parcels, roughly 30% had an opportunity that made sense on paper. Um, So that's 30% of, you know, this 8 million number, um, had had an opportunity that made sense if we didn't consider zoning, and uh, we also have to acknowledge that not all of those would develop at the same time. if If everybody tried to do that, you wouldn't have enough carpenters, you wouldn't have enough uh, you know roofing materials. that's that's impossible. But what we did is basically this this sort of cross-sectional look, like a snapshot in time of what if we send every developer in California out tomorrow to look at every site? And they came back to us at the end of the day and said, well, I think I could build a hundred on that site and 200, it adds up.
0: Right. And so, so that's, that's one side of the equation. How many units would we expect if we make a bunch of, I think, reasonable assumptions about where we do and don't think development would happen, run a standard performa, uh, which is kind of like remarkable, honestly, like the. The scale and the, uh, yeah yeah the, the, I don't know the idea I feel like of doing this like ten or fifteen years ago is is, is, is it, it blows my mind but um so that's that's one side we're trying to figure out how many units could potentially be market feasible on any given lot then the other side of that is how many projects ha- uh, has any given jurisdiction permitted over the last uh, five years and. Uh, this might get a little bit wonky, but we had, a, we had debates over which permitting data to use. I don't know if you want to provide a quick overview of that. <laughs> Maybe that I think this might actually just be of interest to like the, the three of us on this call and nobody else on earth, but permitting data, it's not as straightforward as you would think, right?
1: I can give the highest level summary. There's good data and there's bad data. And we chose something in between that was the best data <laughs> available. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Lacey and people on our team were digging into what's available from the census and looking at change in units over time. We were looking at the census gathering uh, permit data. It turns out that a ton of the data that they have is interpolated. So if you want to like look at geography, small geography by small geography, which includes a lot of small cities across California, you get uh, wildly large error terms in this data. So uh, bottom line is that we decided to go with a number that the state of California requires jurisdictions report to them. And uh, presumably if the state of California is requiring it of you and there are some sticks, uh, if you don't report it, uh, that would be the best available data. So that's what we went with were these uh, reports, the annual annual progress reports that came into uh, the state of California. And then we had to choose between, um, let's see, there's, there's permits, there's uh certificates of occupancy, there's these other features of the data that they report. And we decided to go with permits since that's what everyone talks about. That's what the census talks about. And and so I think another thing to remember is that for a given jurisdiction, we were looking at their permit history and we didn't take into account what Fl- Lacey was just talking about. We didn't take into account whether that permit was issued in a fire hazard We didn't take into account whether it was issued on a plot of land that we had excluded. We just benefited it out to the cities is that they're building housing where it should go, and this is how many they permitted.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think for folks who who look at the report, and I encourage folks to look at the spreadsheet, the full rankings. That's why some of these jurisdictions are report, you know, first, I guess we should clarify. The, the the ratio here is what we're calling the conversion rate. So what's the rate at which uh, every jurisdiction has a certain number of market feasible units, theoretically, every parcel in isolation. Then we compare that against the rate at which the, the jurisdiction's issuing permits, that's the conversion rate. But this point that I think you were getting at was uh, some jurisdictions in there says infinite, right? And it's because, well, it might be a place like La Cunada Flint Ridge, where it's all high fire risk area. And so the model would predict, well, like there aren't uh, any, you know, housing development opportunities here. And what do you know? They they did issue, you know, at least a handful, and so it shows up as infinite. But um, you know that folks, readers uh, need to sort of investigate a little bit there because sometimes you get infinite possibilities because there's just not market rate. There's not any market rate development opportunities, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, there's not any market rate opportunities on land that. Uh, you'd want to see housing development hmm. occur on in the long run, right? Um, you yeah. know, we could build in the hills all day, we could build in the the floodplains all day, but we uh we don't want that, so um, we looked specifically at those places where you had that Venn diagram where it was overlapping, where the market could deliver housing um, and it's places that we we'd, we'd want to see that housing developed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the conversion rate I think is interesting because what we're looking at is basically uh, a picture of, you know, if if you wanted to increase housing production, if you're if you're studying underproduction and you want to increase housing production, you want to look to places where you could put the pedal on the gas, so to speak, somewhere and actually see movement and um we were basically comparing how hard do these cities have their pedal on the gas today versus their market potential. And that's where we found out that, oh, some of them actually have their foot on the brake. It would seem they've got a ton of potential. Uh, everything about this suggests that they could be producing a ton of housing, but they're not. And what you're describing is some places where we found, oh, uh, maybe they shouldn't be producing housing uh because you know they're in a floodplain they're they're completely in a fire prone area um and yet they permitted five homes in the last uh, five years
0: yeah maybe not foot on the gas for our uh, urbanist listeners but to uh, foot on the uh, electric bike pedal yeah um r- r- right yeah there you go yeah 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 there we go very good um Okay, so I think we've we've set up. The, the, there's an extensive discussion of the methodology in the report, and I re- really would encourage folks to take a look at it and uh, 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 help that use that to interpret the results. But I, I want to maybe turn to what you all found. Um, I, I'll say to to set it up. I mean, on the one hand, hey, when I first looked at the the rankings, we take this conversion rate and you and you rank them. Uh, I was like, uh oh, something's off here. Like, where are the usual suspects. But then the more I looked into it actually I think this is a it was it was revealing jurisdictions that actually had a pretty wide you know I don't think we're using the term production gap but a very low conversion rate that maybe don't they don't get a lot of press coverage but just you know based on local conditions we would expect these places to actually be building a lot of housing and they're just not. Uh, do you want to provide a overview of 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 the types of jurisdictions where that was true? Well
1: first Lacey I don't know if you have anything to say about just like the, the geographies that were excluded from the map of California, like, you know, was there a pattern to this? Are there places where there's more opportunities in terms of land area than others? Um, because it, that's an important input into to what we found.
2: So areas of the state right after we all that extraction we talked about environmentally sensitive and important lands for there's still a lot of coastal, those coastal cities that we think of all the time, the southern California, San Diego, Los Angeles, the San Francisco San Jose. Uh, But even within those there's a lot of the earthquake fault zones and fire hazard zones they're not exempt so. um, Beyond that there. are areas that I think sometimes that are more inland too that are uh, still available and viable for development and housing growth, but are um, where we might think is a big fire hazard um, just isn't. So there's, we would assume that all development is happening on the coast, but what we see is there's actually activity much in the interior, much more than I think many people might anticipate
0: interesting yeah Yeah, i mean i think when we talk about like most climate resilient parts of the state i wonder if like the average person doesn't think well of course it can't be the coast right because that's you know sea level rise or this that and the other but actually that's you know in many respects that's probably one of the most resilient parts of the state right
1: certainly can be i think the other yeah please well i think the other thing that some people think of is that Oh, there might be um, a lot of farmland in the Central Valley where, you know, it's important to the state. So it ends up in a database as as a place that we would not have considered for development. Um, People might think that, oh, the market's not as strong in uh, Central California and the Central Valley, for example. Um, And yet we found that um, there is some market potential in these areas that that people are willing to pay enough in rent or in in prices uh, for purchasing homes, that's sufficient to cover the cost of construction there Um, and that there's land available. Um, So um, I guess it wasn't necessarily surprising in the end that there's a lot of places in the Bay Area and greater Los Angeles that have a strong market and on the land that's available once you exclude you know the earthquake (laughs) fault zones and everything else that you could build a ton of housing and they're not so that's that's maybe not surprising Nolan. um but what might be surprising to people is that you go look at the inland empire you go look at um, the central valley and those places do have markets they can provide housing and they are Um, they're providing housing uh, at a decent clip relative to uh, what their market and their land area can accommodate.
0: Yeah, well, we'll talk about the the folks who I think are, are building a lot here in a sec, but um, yeah, looking at these top 25 cities with the lowest conversion rates, uh, Norco, <laughs> kind of a surprise, right? Uh, Laguna Hills, Cerritos, Clayton, La Palma, Moraga, po- Poway, uh, Larkspur. It, it, it it's a surprising list because it's not, It's I don't think it's, It's not necessarily the jurisdictions that you're hearing a lot about in the news, but they're small jurisdictions that have, in many cases, red-hot housing markets. The home prices are very expensive in Orange County or around the Bay. Um, And you look at the permitting numbers for these jurisdictions, and just many of them, I mean, I I mentioned this in the write-up, a few of them hadn't issued any permits for a multifamily building. I think Hillsborough has not issued a permit for a multifamily building as long as we have permitting data, like even looking at the census. Um, But, you know, many of these had only permitted a handful of projects and they have red hot housing markets.
1: Yeah. Or the possibility of red hot markets. So there's, there's some things that stand in the way that we had to assume away. So there's, there's some jurisdictions in there. um, Well, an, an entire class of jurisdictions, like unincorporated counties, right? So maybe outside of the LAFCO, but but there are things standing in the way of development legitimately. Um, and yet, what what we're showing is unfettered. If, if you lifted some of these restrictions on some of these areas, like directly adjacent to a major metro will be, uh, you know, unincorporated Los Angeles County. <laughs> and uh, you have these opportunities to build housing. And in the list of jurisdictions, You know, you end up with some surprising small cities, um, not not many large cities, uh, but also some unincorporated counties uh, that are in hot areas where we could conceivably see housing production. Mm
2: -hmm. happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's another good good. That's that's an important piece, because it's another conspicuous absence, maybe at the very top of the list is there aren't a lot of California's big cities, so L.A., San Diego, San Jose, San Francisco, Sacramento. Of course, you know, certainly in the case of like San Diego and I think San Jose, they were, you know, they had pretty low conversion rates. They could be building more. But when you put them in a pool with every single jurisdiction in the state of California, they are building at least some housing. and it's important to you know it's 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 ultimately a ranking. so it's relative. And so if you have a lot of small suburbs all across California that are building virtually nothing, they they show up somewhat high. And I think that was an important thing that we tried to flag.
1: Yeah, you look at it like in Oakland or LA, they show up in this uh, tranche of cities that is producing five to 10 times what the statewide average is. So they're above average. I think there's something going on here, which is that in these markets that we all think of as the hot markets in California, places where people are willing to pay a lot to live there, to- be a part of the economy, to go get an education. You know all the reasons to move to a big city. Um, we also have people who live there in very expensive buildings. <laughs> we have we have on the ground impediments to development, and in those places where prices are very high, um, you know sometimes it doesn't pencil out to tear down that building and build new housing. Um, and so sometimes the opportunities are in these sort of, um, uh, you know, areas where the prices are um, above average, you know, that's what it takes to, to cover construction costs, um, but they're not the absolute top of the market. So, you know, San Francisco, absolute top of the market across the globe, um, and yet it's top of the market because people are paying that for the existing housing so we're not going to go in and tear down someone's multi-million dollar home their multi-million dollar condo to build back another multi-million dollar condo Um, and so that's that's the other feature of this is that it's both that Oakland and LA are delivering a lot of housing but also the opportunities might be uh, the market feasible opportunities in the small part of their cities that doesn't fall into an earthquake zone, doesn't fall into a fire hazard area, all of those things um, may not be as huge as someone just casually observing the market would would think.
0: Um, yeah, right. A- a- among, among counties, switching gears just a little bit here, uh, counties with the lowest conversion rates, Mendocino, Marin, Napa, Stanislaus, Santa Cruz, Sonoma, Santa Barbara, Monterey, San Benito, and San Luis Obispo. Um, a few counties you kind of expect to see there, right? North Bay, Marin, Napa, Sonoma. We know very, very, very expensive. Uh, this is this is red hot Bay Area housing market bumping up against you know uh, growth controls. But but even when we remove the environmental areas, right, there's still a, a lot of housing that could potentially be built there that's not being built there today.
1: Yeah, I think you'd hear from a lot of people in Marin County that you know there's, it's an environmentally sensitive county, um, and yet we did find areas that fall outside of that definition where you, we determined uh, that those were those were places that were opportunities for development. And you are right, it's a red hot market, and so, but for some of the obstacles that are in in place in Marin County, you would see quite a bit more housing production there. And, it shows up in the data here. Well,
0: and I think I mean Lacy's. I think someone would look at Napa and say, like, "Oh, come on! Like, nap is all the beautiful vineyards. We can't. There's how could there possibly be any housing capacity there?" And it's like, well, those. I, I, if I'm understanding correctly, those would be removed as as prime farmland, right? I mean, that's so. We're, those are mostly taken out of the analysis and say, even even if we take out all the beautiful vineyards, that I don't think any reasonable person would say, "Yeah, let's turn that into housing." You're you're right. still left with opportunities.
2: Yeah, and and. I- I would never presume to say that we accounted for all wineries <laughs> in our data analysis, but it's exactly right. Just, you know, when we think of these large swaths of land, there's, um, that's not all there is out here, mm-hmm. right? That's not all there is. So there's, um, yeah, I think people are surprised to find that there's developable market feasible areas, even where the vineyards are abundant.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you all were hinting at this a little bit here, but I think it's also important. I think it was important for this report, not just to say, okay, here's a bunch of cities that are not building nearly enough, but using this analysis that you all do, we can actually say the flip side too. There are a lot of jurisdictions that are building probably way more than their fair share of, of housing to the extent that, you know, we want to use those terms. Uh, the top, uh, uh, cities with a, with very, very high conversion rates that I, I, I just sort of arbitrarily limited jurisdictions that have permitted more than a 1,000 units over the last few years. Um, Merced, Visalia, Stockton, Lathrop, Lake Elsinore, Bakersfield, Chico, Manteca, Hemet, and Modesto. Um, folks who know California geography can probably tell there's a pretty obvious trend there. Who's overproducing in California?
1: Yeah, the Central Valley uh, <laughs> has a market for housing, and they're delivering it. It's it's a pretty straightforward equation where uh, it, the market is not red hot necessarily, but it is sufficient to cover construction costs, to pay your lenders, to buy the land, and um, and that's happening. There are not, it would seem, there are not other factors, other obstacles um, being placed in the way of housing development in the Central Valley, whereas. In contrast, we do see that in other parts of the state, particularly big cities, coastal, where there are opportunities, and something is uh, standing in the way of that development. So,
0: I, I, I want to hear from both Ian, both you and Lacey, You know, what surprised you in this in this ranking output? Anything? Anything surprised you? Anything that you didn't expect to see?
2: Great question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess it's hard to ask somebody after they've been working on something for months. Okay, like put yourself in the original mindset. But yeah, what what surprised you?
2: Well, I think I'm actually, you know, i I'm kind of there with a lot of people where I was surprised to not see some of the bigger cities named because you just anticipate that the the cities that we always hear about that have the big fights over the parking lots and whatever are just gonna be the big, but um, even if you look at the lowest conversion rates map in the report, those pockets, it's it's the same pocket. Like those big cities, the where we find those worst performers are those little cities in those bigger metro areas. So I think it's, actually maybe it's not, I'm not surprised to see this. I think the surprise is it's not the big city but it is still the same areas. So much of this is along these kind of coastal big areas because I think it's important to remember that uh, how many jurisdictions exist within these big metro areas. Um, so I, it was a good reminder, right? When we're talking about jurisdictions or performing too, like there's just more, there's more in these hot areas in these populated areas than just the big cities. Um, so it was a really good reminder of, uh, of when we're talking about a big city, who are we? We're also talking about a bunch of bunch of other cities.
1: Yeah. And I guess for me, we've been doing this for a while now. Um, we've been looking at various states, and in California, we've looked at several bills, you know, from uh, SB 827 that became SB 50 to uh, maybe 2011, SB 9. And every time,
0: the beatings will continue until morale improves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? Can, what uh continues to to pop up is that there are places where the market could deliver housing, but there's something standing in the way. And with each of those bills, you remove some sort of obstacle, and the market can deliver in those places. What was really innovative this time for. Or the analysis was working with your team to identify places where you just, you wouldn't want to consider the market delivering housing in those places. And I was shocked to see how many jurisdictions just sort of fell off the map, where we have entire cities that are subject to fires, earthquake, all of these hazards. Um, and it it's concerning. I think we see it now in in. The insurance market and other things uh, that that these places are uh, difficult to insure because they're at risk, and we probably shouldn't be putting new housing there. So um, I would say that that was the most shocking thing for me uh, is that some of these bad actors, you know, people that you, uh, you you think of the the articles that come out about these cities, um, and they're definitively trying to prevent housing from being built there and then you go look and they show up on our map as a place where you probably wouldn't want housing to be built in so give yeah. them some credit
0: no i i, I mean I, I i think another way to view i think that's exactly right i think another way to think of that though is it, it should force policymakers to take seriously the exclusions that they write into law right because those this, this can cover a lot of land that we might say yeah there's an environmental risk but maybe the approach is mitigating that risk rather than to say, well, we're just going to wholesale exclude certain areas. I don't think that's always the case. And I think, I mean, you raised fire. I mean, how can we not raise fire a thousand times in the discussion of California housing issues? And and those are using old fire risk maps, right? And we know that the risk is expanding over time. And I think this is this is an important question. I, Lacey, I want to pick up something you said, because I think this is actually the thing that it's related to the what surprised me about the report is yeah i think we do tend to forget metro areas you know are dozens of different jurisdictions right that are sort of behaving very differently from a permitting perspective and um you know the 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 the, the results that really surprised me from a, coming from an la perspective were a lot of the lowest conversion rates were in you know 60 70 suburbs in the south bay or in the gateway cities that we might not necessarily think of okay, that's the heart of the California housing crisis, but maybe these are these are suburbs that were fully built out 50 years ago. They're single-family homes on fairly large lots that are pretty amenable to redevelopment, and then only in recent years have the prices there. You know, really only over the last decade have the prices there become really high. So, for example, Cerritos, right? I think if you ask the average Angelito, like where where is like they the largest gap between market feasible capacity and permitting rates, they probably wouldn't offer up Cerritos or Torrance. Torrance is like a top 30, 40 uh, jurisdiction, right? I mean, like, if if they were really, you know, maybe if they work for for Mapcraft, they might be like, yeah, of course, here, here it is. But I think the average person that would not be the first jurisdiction that they offer up. But I think it's what this report revealed is that there actually is a lot of capacity in these places. And that's a tough, that's a tough pill for I think policymakers to swallow a lot of these context. Maybe I think we're very comfortable saying, okay, yeah. Um, Greenfield, I think is pretty easy because there's just nobody there to oppose the project. Building residential and industrial or commercial areas, same thing. It's There's nobody there to oppose. There's no neighborhood that has to change. But I think part of what the report showed is that there are a lot of parts of the state that are they're, they're single family homes at the end of a 50-year lifespan on a fairly large lot that probably would be redeveloped in a sort of open market scenario. And that would be where a ton of new housing would come online, but that's the most politically sensitive place to add housing. And so in a certain sense, like it's good that we know this and like, it's good that we're honest about what the data found, but that's a tough political nut to crack. I don't know if either of you have thoughts on that.
1: I think you just describe the nut that your entire organization is trying to crack. But um, <laughs> I, I will say that uh, one of the other shocking things about this is that we have a process in California, the RENA process, that's supposed to crack this nut to some extent, right? It's supposed to identify places and allocate this, this uh, amount of housing that you should permit for over the coming years. Um, and I, I look at these this list, and I'm not seeing this list lining up with where people are choosing to allocate the arena. You know they're they're using other metrics. They're using like existing population, which, if it's all single family, it's going to have a lower population than a city that is mostly multifamily on a you know, density basis. If they're using uh, market indicators, if they're just going by rent, right? Then, Maybe you're only looking at the high rent and high priced cities thinking that's where the market will be able to deliver it, but you haven't accounted for the fact that there's costs and there are uh, these environmental uh, risks that you want to avoid. And so, yeah, you, you might think that someone would look at one of those suburbs and say, maybe the state would want to allocate more housing potential there and- and there you go.
0: <laughs> no, I I think that's exactly right. And I think that's that's really hopefully how policymakers and civil servants can use this. I mean, so much of the arena process or the way we do enforcement is, you know, I think by its very nature, it's going to be very political and that's unavoidable. But I think we can be guided in our work to a greater extent than we are today by some of these actual indicators of. Where is market feasible housing possible? I mean, that was that was why I think we we wanted to work with you on this, because I think we had a real question of, you know, um, of course, we can just pick on the usual suspects all day, but where are the parts of the state where, if maybe we could remove regulatory barriers to inherently affordable forms of housing, where would we expect it to occur and, and and that can be used to guide policy um, interventions. Um, I know that this is more like on our side of the responsibility list, but I'm curious, you know, what, what, what would you want a policymaker or housing activist to take away from this work?
1: Well, I think there's more work to be done, for one thing. I mean, I think what I would like people to see is that there's a certain amount of like latent production. We, we can unlock this production. The market might be able to do it and perhaps do this without Any subsidy in some cases, right? Like that—that's what we're talking about here. If we can inject a little bit of subsidy, we could do additional things like inclusionary housing, deliver affordable housing in some of this housing. Um, And um, in fact, you know, we were thinking about this as a first step towards identifying the places that need to improve. So where is your conversion rate so egregiously low that you should be looking to these others where their conversion rate is quite high to see, hey, what's going on over here that's not going on over here? What's going on over here that we need to implement? And I think that that's that's where policymakers can go next with this if we do a little bit more work with it, um, is basically dig deep into why some places are producing that have the potential, while others are not producing that have that same potential.
0: Lacey, any thoughts on that?
2: I'll just say one quick thing as a former city planner, if I were a planner in one of these cities, I'd maybe start thinking about, that was identified as being a a quote unquote bad actor. Uh, I'd maybe start thinking about my zoning code. really hard about how does that, if the market says it's good, and I know I'm in this area and the city I work for, maybe start rethinking what, how does that zoning code actually work? What does that implementation look like? Um, But yeah, again, it's hard for me not to immediately start diving into the weeds. I want to know what does their single family zoning say? (laughs) And that is not what we're here to do today.
0: No, that, that, I mean, as, as, as the other planner, uh, you know, that, that, that's my thought too, is like, let's crack open some of these codes and see what the rule, I mean, I think, you know, something I've been more cognizant of recently, sometimes it is like the substance of the rules, right? Like you just have, you have a high minimum lot size and you have single family zoning and the zoning just literally doesn't allow anything than what currently exists. Right. But another aspect of this is potentially like, I know many jurisdictions in Southern California have zoning codes that allow a lot more than what's potentially being built but they're just known to have very slow permitting processes or you know maybe they're known to they'll allow something if you go through a discretionary permitting process but it's just going to take time and it's going to involve sequa, and it's going to be expensive and difficult and yeah you know, that's potentially the lower hanging fruit even than zoning reform is like just get your permitting processes sort it out, right? Make it really easy for someone to build an ADU or to do a SB9 style project. Those are things that are theoretically already allowed, right? But we just know that there's there's probably a lot of variation in how like responsive jurisdictions are in implementing.
1: I would guess that there's some jurisdictions out there that are just known to be difficult through, like you said, slow permitting, um, a design review process that's egregious, the politics. I, I know that you've You've talked at length about the politics of like l a uh, and and getting through the discretionary process there, but those are impediments that are qualitative in nature. like you you've uh, you've basically issued a billboard warning, don't come to our town developers, and uh, somehow that needs to be uh, that needs to be reversed. For this development, that is market feasible to move forward, you'd actually have to have developers interested in showing up at a at a planning commission meeting to get their rezoning, or they would have to change their zoning code to be as of right for this type of development, and uh, and then you know issue a permit within sixty days. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, while we're geeking out about methodology, I mean, I think I was having this conversation with somebody about, you know, estimating zoning restrictiveness across a bunch of jurisdictions. And, you know, I think a standard sort of methods approach is like, well, let's just count up the number of words in a zoning code. And that will be like a proxy for like zoning restrictiveness. And yeah, Lisa, you're already laughing because it's like, well, like I've seen some unbelievably restrictive zoning codes that are just like, you know, maybe. Beautiful,
2: then short and yeah
0: maybe they're two dozen pages long and it's like well they mm-hmm. just actually have the absolute they yeah it's like the whole city's single family and a minimum size of a half acre and oh what do you know that's existing conditions they don't need like a, th- a thousand page zoning code to to block the projects that they don't want but do, you, you you don't know that unless you actually like dig into the the the, the 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 qualitative aspects of it of like what are the rules right i mean yeah let's
2: let's bust open those pdfs <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh well there's hopefully much more research to be done uh uh on this um yeah ian and lacy thanks so much uh i think this is the start of a really exciting research agenda and and hopefully you know i think continuing to do the the uh, scale up the work that you all do really bringing an actual data-driven reality-driven approach to policymaking i um i i I'm going to sound a little bit salty, but my first year going through the full legislative cycle, I've been impressed by the extent to which policy development and change happens with no uh, research or data. Sometimes, not always. Uh, I'll hear something be proposed, like a an exclusion area be proposed, and my immediate reaction is, okay, sure, let's see the map, and nobody's done the map, and I'm like, this would have taken 30 minutes in GIS. Here's the actual implication of this policy. Sorry little bit of a rant all of this is to say this work is really really important and i, and I hope folks will dive into it and uh and, and and follow some of the work that we've done going forward um i do want to ask by way of closing is there anything you are working on right now that you're especially excited or uh upcoming project that 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 folks would get uh excited about
1: well one that we're working on is uh in state of colorado is interested in reforming uh their housing policies and doing so at the state level. Um, And so we've done some investigations into what different uh, statewide policy measures uh, could do uh, in terms of opening up more opportunities for market feasible housing development. And we're continuing that work to understand um, where it could happen. And would those be sort of low VMT areas? Would those be areas of opportunity? Um, and so it's exciting to see a state um, move something forward, and uh, what they're doing there is borrowing policies from all across the country, having seen California move things forward, Oregon, Connecticut, and others. They're they're taking sort of the best of list, and it'll be really interesting to see what a, a best of list um, yields in terms of uh, of opportunities to deliver more housing in a state.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, inc- I mean, it's, it's been exciting to see. It's funny. Cause you, 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 you go to some of these States and they're like, we don't want to end up like California slash by the way, what has California been up to for the past five years? So <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate your perspective. And uh, I, yeah, I'm very excited to for us to get to a point where we have multiple States that are trying out different land use interventions and we can figure out what works and what doesn't work. So uh, yeah. And I know there's a great team working on this in Colorado Um Great. Well, uh, Ian Carlton and Lacey Patterson, uh, thanks so much for for being great collaborators on this housing under production report. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the talk, folks can find it on our website, californiayemb.org uh, in the research tab drop down menu. Ian Lacey, thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us.